Before we get started, we wanted to let you know that we would love to hear what you think about the show. So, we've created a listener survey. We would be so grateful if you filled out the survey. It only takes two minutes, we promise. A link to the survey is on our website at ifebp.org podcast. And as if the unending gratitude of your favorite podcast hosts isn't enough, we've sweetened the pot. You'll be entered to win a $10 Amazon gift card just for filling out the survey. And we'll choose a random winner each month. This month's winner is Karen from UFCW 655 in Missouri. Congrats, Karen. And now let's go on to the show. Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You are listening to Talking Benefits. Every month, we cover the top stories in retirement and healthcare, the latest benefits, hot topics, and whatever else the industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held. I'm Ann Patterson. I'm Julie Stick. And I'm Kelly Colesrude. Now let's talk benefits. Another year has come and is almost gone. So what's been happening? As has become our year-end tradition, we're taking a look back at the top benefit stories of the past year. Plus, we've got some predictions for what the benefits industry will be buzzing about next year. So how did we fare with our predictions from 2019? Well, our first prediction was that wellness incentive regulations would be a hot topic. A year ago, the EEOC said that they would issue proposed rules on new wellness incentive regulations by June of 2019. So we thought that would bring changes to wellness incentive structure. The regulations were not released as expected, and in the fall of this year, the EEOC said they will release proposed regulations by January 2020. So I guess that means they could be released any day. So what should employers do about their wellness program incentives that are starting January 1st? Just like last year, we still predict a period of uncertainty until the release of new regulations. Employers that have or are considering wellness programs will have to monitor developments or seek advice from legal counsel. And of course, we'll be watching closely for any guidance or new regulations. Okay, next, we predicted that there might be retirement legislation introduced that could pass in one or both chambers of Congress. We did see some progress here in the area of bipartisanship, primarily with a bill called the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement or SECURE Act that did pass the House, but not the Senate. So to date, no bills have been signed into law. And I believe that our third prediction dealt with multi-employer defined benefit pension plan solvency. I know that we've been following these developments throughout the year. Yes, Justin, you're right. That has been on our radar. Now, in 2019, we saw the Department of Treasury approve benefit reductions under the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act for five more plans. And we watched to see what would happen with the Rehabilitation for Multi-Employer Pensions Act, which is also known as the Butch Lewis Bill. The bill passed the House in July, but it stalled in the Senate. The PBGC reported in November that their multi-employer program has a record-setting deficit and that the agency as a whole is still predicted to be insolvent sometime during fiscal year 2025. And over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Senate Republicans put forth a proposal that would incorporate changes to the PBGC's premiums and maximums to help the multi-employer program. We're waiting to see if that proposal will become a bill. 
And in the meantime, troubled plans continue to look for solutions, whether it be increased employer contributions, plan mergers, plan partitions, changes to adjustable benefits, and even potential benefit reductions. Okay, moving on, our fourth item on the watch list was the DOL overtime rule. The hot button for this topic had been focused on the rule's minimum salary threshold to exempt certain employees from overtime pay. Now, that hadn't been changed in many years, but when the final rule was published in September, the salary threshold was up to $35,568 per year. This rule will be effective as of January 1st, 2020. And finally, through the use of some fantastic puns, if I do say so myself, we predicted that there might be some movement in the area of medical marijuana. Uh, But unfortunately, we really missed the mark on this one, and not much has happened since 2018. The federal government has categorized marijuana as a Schedule I drug, which means it's perceived to have no medical value and a high potential for abuse, so it's strictly prohibited. Because of that status, benefit plans cannot legally cover medical marijuana, though there are some bills pending to decriminalize it. At present, there are 33 states plus the District of Columbia where the use of medical marijuana is legal. So what actually did happen this year? Here are the top five benefit developments of 2019. Well, I have to say that the Affordable Care Act was once again a prevalent headline grabber in 2019. The activity primarily centered around what has been taking place in the courts. Several regulations and Trump administration actions were challenged in the courts, and we're still waiting for the final results of those lawsuits and appeals. And Kelly, I'm sure one of those legal cases is Texas versus the United States, right? I believe we're waiting for a decision from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals about whether the entire ACA is unconstitutional after the enactment of the 2017 tax law that dropped the individual mandate penalty to zero, correct? You've got it, Anne. Oral arguments were presented in July of this year, but we've been waiting ever since for a decision. Now, if the Fifth Circuit rules against the ACA, it would have significant repercussions. The law was enacted nearly 10 years ago and is well entrenched, and many people depend on its protections and the access to health care benefits that it provides. And I know that I've read no matter which way the Fifth Circuit rules, experts predict that it will be appealed to the Supreme Court. So the drama is sure to continue into 2020. Yep. And that's not the only case related to ACA. In March 2019, a federal judge ruled that the 2018 regulations that expanded access to association health plans exceeded statutory authority and therefore were invalidated. The Department of Labor has appealed that decision and oral arguments for the appeal were heard on November 14th. No decision yet on that one either. Okay, there have also been legal tussles concerning ACA's mandate to provide contraceptive coverage without cost sharing. The Trump administration issued regulations that allowed an organization to be exempt from the contraceptive mandate if it had moral or religious objections to the requirement. Right before the rules went into effect, they were successfully challenged in district courts in Pennsylvania and California, and the corresponding appeals courts also ruled against the regulations. These decisions have been appealed to the Supreme Court, which has not announced whether it will take the case. Wow, that's a lot of court action. Section 1557 of ACA resulted in new rules that prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability in healthcare programs that receive federal funding. 
the Obama administration defined discrimination on the basis of sex to include termination of pregnancy, sex stereotyping, and gender identity. That definition was challenged in court, and in May of this year, the Trump administration issued proposed regulations to change that definition and roll back protections related to transgender individuals and pregnancy termination. The rules are not final yet. Meanwhile, on October 15th, a Texas district court ruled against the Obama administration's definition, saying it violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Appeals are expected. In addition, on October 8th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on whether the prohibition of sex discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act includes discrimination based on someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. That decision is expected next summer and could influence the lawsuits that are considering the scope of Section 1557. So it seems like there's quite a bit of uncertainty surrounding ACA, but as we've said in the past, it is still, as of today, the law of the land, and provisions including the employer mandate and Form 1095 reporting are still required. Okay, it's time to switch gears and explore the new final regulations related to health reimbursement arrangements. The new regulations for HRAs were released in June of this year and expand the potential use of these accounts by creating two new types of HRAs. First, there's the Individual Coverage HRA, or ICHRA. An ICHRA allows an employer, regardless of size, to contribute pre-tax dollars to the ICHRA to subsidize premiums and or qualified medical expenses for individual health plan coverage purchased by employees. The really new thing here is that it allows employees to spend the account funds on insurance premiums, which was not typically permitted for all HRAs in the past. Individual coverage includes insurance purchased inside or outside the ACA marketplace exchanges. It also includes a student health insurance coverage and, in some cases, Medicare Parts A, B, and C. The individual plan must still satisfy the ACA mandates banning annual limits on essential health benefits and requiring that preventive care services be provided without cost-sharing. Also, if an employer offers an ICHRA to a group of employees, it cannot also offer traditional employer-sponsored group health insurance. The second type of new HRA, it's called an accepted benefit HRA. This type of HRA requires that the employer first offer a separate traditional group health plan. The funds contributed by the employer to the accepted benefit HRA can be used to reimburse costs and premiums for standalone dental or vision benefits, COBRA, most short-term limited duration insurance plans, plus any IRS-approved medical expenses that are not covered by the employer group health plan. There is a limit on the amount of employer contributions allowed per employee per year. Currently, it's $1,800, but that limit will be indexed annually for inflation. Both of these new types of HRAs are available for plan years beginning on or after January 1st of 2020. And I'll also mention that the International Foundation published a three-part blog on these new HRA regulations if you want to take a deeper dive into some of those details. And that was written by our own producer, Rose. Mm-hmm. Go, Rose. <laughs> 
Moving down our list of the top five benefit developments, our third topic is mental health benefits. I've certainly noticed a pronounced increase in media coverage on this topic, not only in publications related to employee benefits, but in the medical arena, in popular press, and more and more celebrities are doing their part in helping to destigmatize mental health as well. As you know, health plans that offer treatment benefits for mental health and substance use disorder must comply with the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. This year, the federal government announced that they are enforcing compliance now more than ever, and plans can use the DOL Self-Compliance for the Parity Act guide to make sure they are doing everything they should. At the industry level, there have been reports of a lack of affordable in-network mental health providers in comparison to medical benefit providers, and the gap appears to be widening. So this is definitely something that we'll be tracking going forward. Along with the increased attention from the DOL, there's been an increased emphasis from both employers and the media. This may be a reaction to the employer cost increases to cover mental health conditions. In 2012, mental health was reported as one of the top three healthcare costs by 15% of organizations. This year, 28% of organizations included it as one of their top three conditions, surpassing hypertension and high blood pressure. And employer coverage is steadily increasing. According to our recent wellness survey released in October, 87% of U.S. organizations offer mental health coverage, and that's up from 2014, where the rate was 69%. Okay, we're about halfway into the episode, so let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Was one of your New Year's resolutions to get started or continue your CEBS designation, and maybe that didn't happen? That's okay. January 1st is right around the corner and a great reason to jump back into that goal, especially with online classes starting on January 27th. As a CEBS student and graduate, you're in excellent company with hosts Julie, Justin, Kelly, our producers Rose and Stacy, and our producer editor, or predator, Amanda. (laughs) All CEBS graduates who wanted to take their career and benefits to the next level. Visit ifebp.org slash CEBS for more information and to register for classes. Get after it in 2020. Our next 2019 benefit development is the increased attention to worker perks offered by employers. This may be due to the tight labor market and an increased competition for talent. Perks can be any non-wage benefit, so this could be paid leave, flexible scheduling, professional development initiatives, office perks, commuter benefits, all sorts of things. Over the past year at the foundation, we took a look at some family-friendly perks, those designed to help workers achieve work-life balance and even benefits to support some of your furrier That's right. Looking at family-friendly benefits, we've seen tremendous growth in several categories, starting with coverage for fertility benefits, including in vitro fertilization treatments, fertility medications, and genetic testing to determine infertility issues. Also on the rise are paid maternity leave, paid adoption leave, paid family or caregiving leave, and unpaid offerings beyond the requirements of FMLA. Other family-friendly perks on the rise are dependent care flexible spending accounts, resource and referral services for child care, financial assistance for adoption, and 529 college savings plans. Speaking of 
529 college savings plans, I think Justin and Anne are going to have to look into that because, well, Justin already has a new dependent, <laughs> and Anne is expecting one any moment. Mm-hmm. Yes, literally any, any moment. I'm waiting for Justin to do everything first, and then I'm going to ask him. Yes. So that's our plan. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a veteran by now, so you <laughs> <laughs> Three months ahead of me. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Employers are now offering a variety of flexible work options to help workers achieve more work-life balance. So this could include telecommuting, which is allowing employees to work full or part-time from home while maintaining communication with an office, offering flexible work hours or compressed work weeks and summer hours. Also commonly offered are flexible work schedules for religious observances and job sharing. And finally, Anne authored a blog about a rarer, more niche offering, pet perks. Yes, Justin, with pet ownership at an all-time high, it makes sense that pet-focused benefits are making their way into more mainstream workplace benefit offerings. These often take the form of pet insurance, which covers veterinarian care for accidents and illness, and paternity leave, which provides workers with time off to help a pet adjust to a new home. Less common, but certainly not less intriguing, are allowing pets at work and providing pet bereavement leave to workers when a pet passes away. Okay, I think it's time to move on to our fifth big benefit trend for 2019. With legislative gridlock at the federal level, we noticed a pronounced increase in legislation and regulations at the state and local level that directly affect employee benefits. You're right, Kelly. One example of that is in the area of retirement savings. There have been 10 states and one city that have set up retirement savings programs for employees whose employers don't offer retirement plans. And I find it interesting that a handful of states have even proposed their own versions of a fiduciary rule after the DOL's fiduciary rule was withdrawn in 2018. State and local activity have been very prevalent in the arena of paid leave. It's definitely hard to keep up with the number of jurisdictions that have enacted paid sick leave laws. I think the current count is 21 cities and counties, 10 states, and the District of Columbia. And I will not list them all because we'll be here forever. And I can offer lots of examples that pertain to health care benefits. Several of them are focused on preserving the protections offered by ACA in case that law is repealed or declared unconstitutional. At least 13 states have taken steps to protect individuals with pre-existing conditions. Five states in Washington, D.C. have their own individual mandates to make sure that all citizens get health insurance. Nine states have passed laws to keep the essential health benefits intact. Two states are pursuing a public option for individual health coverage, and at least nine states have enacted laws to uphold the ban on lifetime or annual coverage limits. In addition, half a dozen states have recently, or are planning to soon, launch their own state health insurance exchanges instead of relying on the federally run exchange marketplace. Some states have gotten impatient waiting for federal action to curtail prescription drug price escalation. State laws have been passed to increase drug price transparency and to allow drug importation from Canada. Of course, this patchwork of varying state and local laws can create headaches for employers that have workers in multiple states. It does create job security for all of our attorney friends. It does. (laughs) It's always good. So that is it for 2019, but there are a few things we think you should keep your eye on as they develop next year. So here is our 2020 watch list. Okay. Let's call out the obvious elephant in the room, the upcoming federal election in November 2020. 
We've already seen some of the Democratic candidates putting forth their ideas or proposals tied to benefits. There have been the health care proposals from Pete Buttigieg, as well as his recent plans for a government-run federal 401k option and his services and support system for long-term care. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have discussed their ideas about a Medicare for All plan, and Amy Klobuchar is looking at paid family leave. On the other side, President Trump has been pushing for transparency in health care pricing and lower costs for prescription drugs. I think we'll have to wait for a clear picture to emerge as a Democratic candidate is chosen and as platforms are adopted. It's safe to say that the election will most likely dominate the news on multiple fronts. It could also slow the pace for federal, legislative, and regulatory action even more. Okay, topic to watch number two is the fiduciary rule. So at the end of last year, we did have the SEC's proposed rule waiting for action. We saw that action this past June when the SEC voted in their package of final rules and interpretations aimed at addressing how investment advisors and broker-dealers work with retail investors. One of the core pieces was a new standard of conduct called the Regulation Best Interest. This standard of conduct draws from fiduciary principles and includes compliance and disclosures. So are we waiting on a new DOL rule? That's right, Anne. Preston Rutledge, who is the Assistant Secretary for the Department of Labor's Employee Benefit Security Administration, said this year in 2019 that the DOL's new conflict of interest guidance would align with that of the SEC. The DOL was originally slated to release their proposed rule in September, but that was delayed probably because of some changes at DOL. Okay, so when will the DOL's proposed rule be released? According to the latest agency rule agenda, a new fiduciary rule could come out anytime. It's scheduled for sometime in December, but we haven't seen it as of this date. In this tight labor market, employers are looking for things to set them apart, and that brings us to our next topic to watch. With the crazy high costs of post-secondary education, One type of benefit that's becoming very popular with employees is student loan repayment assistance. We gathered some data on this benefit in our 2019 study on educational benefits. The survey showed that these offerings are rare, but there is growing interest moving forward. 4% of responding organizations already offer some sort of student loan repayment assistance benefit. Also, 2% of our survey respondents are currently in the process of implementing a program, and an additional 23% are considering implementing a program. In addition, large employers are more likely than both small and mid-sized organizations to consider adding a program. During our August episode this year, we talked about this topic and Abbott's student loan matching program called Freedom to Save. As a brief reminder, with this type of program, an employer makes contributions into an employee's 401k account to match their student loan debt repayments. Abbott applied and received an IRS private letter ruling for their program. The attention that Abbott's program received has garnered attention in Congress and the agencies as well. There are a couple of pending Senate bills that would amend the Eternal Revenue Code to permit the treatment of student loan repayments as elective deferrals for the purposes of employer matching contributions to qualified plans. And this past October, the IRS included this idea in the Treasury Department's 2019-2020 Priority Guidance Plan. There wasn't any elaboration of what this guidance might eventually look like, so we'll have to wait and see. 
Another topic to watch in 2020 relates to prescription drug costs. In May 2018, the Trump administration released a blueprint aimed at addressing and lowering drug costs. Some of the proposed tactics have been implemented and others are being debated. We expect this process to continue in 2020. So what's happening with disclosing prescription drug prices in television ads? It was happening, now it's not happening. (laughs) Yes, it was proposed, but then it was challenged in court, and a judge ruled that the Department of Health and Human Services didn't have the authority to require that. HHS has appealed the decision. In November, Senators Dick Durbin and Chuck Grassley were pushing hard for a Senate vote on their Drug Price Transparency and Communications Act, which is a bipartisan bill to require drug companies to list prices of prescription drugs in direct-to-consumer ads. And another tactic that the Trump administration has been trying to implement over the past year is restructuring how pharmacy benefit managers negotiate with drug makers. A proposal was issued, but then withdrawn. My guess is that this will probably be addressed again in 2020. Another thing we've been hearing about focuses on importing drugs from other countries where they're priced lower. So what is the latest on that, Kelly? Well, the HHS and Food Drug Administration, or FDA, are working on a safe importation action plan to allow importation of certain drugs originally intended for foreign markets. The plan includes two pathways to achieve that. First, state governments could seek permission from HHS to import drugs from Canadian suppliers if they meet stringent requirements. The other option would allow drug manufacturers to import versions of FDA-approved drugs they sell in foreign countries that are the same as the U.S. versions. This plan is not an official proposed rule yet, but I expect to see proposals in the new year. So our last topic to watch in the new year isn't tied directly to new laws, regulations, or legal cases. It's focused on the big changes in the healthcare industry. New approaches being explored by healthcare purchasers, as well as mergers of healthcare providers, could have a significant impact on healthcare benefits in the future. And two big mergers that come to mind were actually acquisitions. So Cigna acquired Express Scripts at the end of 2018, and the CVS acquisition of Aetna was approved in September 2019. The combination of drug suppliers and health insurers could have pros and cons for the employers that purchase these products and services. Time will tell. Speaking of the purchasers, it sure seems like Amazon gets a lot of press for their innovations related to healthcare benefits. They launched Amazon Care a couple of months ago, which is a virtual medical clinic for Amazon employees in the Seattle area. The program uses telehealth via apps, but may also send a nurse to an employee's home for follow-ups. Super interesting. Another entity to watch is Haven Healthcare, a joint venture of J.P. Morgan Chase, Amazon, and Berkshire Hathaway. They have started testing a new healthcare venture in order to make healthcare costs more transparent, which should lead to lower benefit costs. And rounding out the healthcare industry disruptors is the Employer Health Innovation Roundtable, which is a grassroots group made of nearly 60 big name employers that represent nearly 8 million employees. 
dissatisfied with the status quo, these employers are seeking solutions to a wide variety of health issues plaguing the workforce, which include mental health, opioid abuse, caregiving demands, musculoskeletal problems, to name a few. They hope to accelerate adoption of innovative practices to promote employee health, wellness, and productivity. Phew, we got through it, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yes, and we love our listeners, like Stephen Grebe, who reached out to say he loves the show. Thanks for listening, Stephen. And we'd love to hear from you as well. Let us know your thoughts by taking our listener survey at ifebp.org slash podcast. You can win a $10 Amazon gift card, and we'll give you a shout out in an episode. Happy holidays, everyone. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting app so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Today's program is copyrighted in 2019 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, all rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel. Amy Klobuchar. 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 Because ICH is F. So I could have done that. How do you say that? Appellate. Who wrote that? Oh, I wrote that. Oh, look at you.